all CIOs have a high degree of paranoia and a high degree of optimism. That's really what is ingrained as a CIO in me. I call that trait of CIOs to be that of a paranoid optimist. That's Ravi Naik, Chief Information Officer and Executive Vice President of LiveCloud at Seagate. I actually joined Seagate about five years ago, and I came to Seagate as a, a Chief Information Officer with a primary goal of uh, transforming Seagate IT. Now, we use the word transformation very loosely in in our industry, but uh, there was a very clear objective. Uh, Seagate at that time was uh, uh, essentially uh, running its operations across the globe, and IT was a very federated uh, organization. Each uh, factory had its own IT organization. There were uh, distributed architectures. Uh, There were teams that were actually duplicative. And the goal was to really bring about a seamless transformation uh, in order to really improve the efficiency of the organization, of the IT organization, but more importantly, to provide value to the business in terms of bringing about process efficiency, tool efficiencies, architecture efficiencies, and through the process, streamlining the IT spend for this company. Um, So I started uh, in that role five years ago and we did some major initiatives. Uh, We did some very heavy lifting in about 18 months time, uh, changed the direction of the ship. And through the process uh, came a strategic initiative to actually build our own services platform, to build our cloud offering, uh, which uh, was a strategy that uh, uh, the senior leadership adopted. And I was asked to help uh, really run with that strategy and execute on it. Uh, That's really how the two roles, the dual role, uh, dual roles came about. One is uh, the CIO role and the other is the executive vice president of storage services. So in that role, I'm responsible for uh, the entire services business for Seagate. You're very involved with multi-cloud. So why don't you tell us about that? So the ability to adopt the different cloud solutions across various clouds is really what multi-cloud is about. Uh, Today, we don't really live in a multi-cloud world. We use the term multi-cloud very loosely. Uh, We use in a world of, live in a world of multiple clouds. There are multiple clouds that actually operate independently and they do not talk to each other. The workloads do not move seamlessly from one cloud to the other from or from on-prem to the cloud or cloud to on-prem. And that's the reason I say we live in a world of multiple clouds. A true multi-cloud experience is where customers and practitioners like CIOs have the ability to actually move workloads seamlessly no matter where uh, the technology or the application uh, footprint is. Why has this term multi-cloud become so, uh, so important? The way the cloud has been architected um, it has been designed to uh, bring workloads and customers in, but it has made it incredibly difficult for workloads to migrate off. So think about uh, a situation where you are uh, leveraging one platform today because it provides the best-in-class solution for machine learning. And Uh, six months down the line, a year down the line, there is a completely different platform by a different provider who has brought in 
a new innovative solution which you want to take advantage of. Now, you can't take advantage of that in, in today's cloud environment. It's because of incredibly challenging models and frameworks that have been put in place to trap customers in, to lock customers in. It is the trick that the cloud has really perfected, which is to bring customers and workloads in and then lock the workloads down so they cannot leave. They cannot take advantage of the innovation or new tools or solutions that are coming out from different uh, platforms providers. And, and that's the reason multi-cloud is becoming important. Multi-cloud is about really bringing that freedom Right. How do you ensure that you can actually make that switch and uh, make the switch in a very seamless manner without disrupting the business, without disrupting what you have built over time? And that's where multi-cloud becomes a very key element of our conversation. And to, to make it a little bit more practical, what I'd like to say is um, storage is an incredibly great example of that. Right, When you actually put data uh, in a storage platform, it is the the data movement, which is really where the friction is. So if you're able to pull the data out and put it in an independent, what I call is a storage plane, then you can very easily start leveraging all of these different tools that are available in the various clouds and service providers. You were just des describing multi-cloud as the antidote to cloud vendor lock-in. It is an antidote to cloud vendor lock-in but it is also a very powerful mechanism for customers to start owning their data. Today, the customers actually do not own their data because they have to pay for every transaction on their data. They pay for storage, they pay for egress, they pay for API, they pay for deletion. And this is your own data. So you pay for the same data over and over again. Then the products that you're building and other multi-cloud vendors are building do what? What do you enable actually? So what we do with the Seagate's Live Cloud uh, S3 compliant storage service is provide the storage backplane for customers. And what do I mean by storage backplane? Storage backplane is essentially a solution or a platform where customers can store their data without any fear of lock-in. So you can bring in your data, you can take off your data, you can migrate your data on and off-prem without having to worry about paying these additional fees. You pay for storage in a way where it was originally meant to be. Look, the idea of the public cloud was to simplify architectures, lower the invoices and the bills for customers and accelerate business and innovation. In reality, what has happened is the opposite. Uh, architectures have become very focused on locking customer data in, bringing about friction for workload movement, and thus it has slowed down innovation. So really what we offer is the ability for customers to store data and pay for what you store and nothing else. There are no extras. But when you do that, you have that platform available where you keep your data. Now you can use a slew of different products from various cloud vendors and service providers on that data. And at any point in time, you actually want to let go of that data. You want it to be packaged and sent it to you. We put it on a shuttle. We have our data shuttles, which are available, where we store this data and we move it physically to your data center so you can ingest it into your on-prem location. Vamsi Paladugu, who I think is uh, probably on your team from Seagate, 
he makes he raises a really good point. Why is this seamless experience so unusual today? It's really about monetization, right? When you when you look at monetization of customers' data, where do you draw the line? Is the question I ask myself and and my fellow CIOs. Uh, yes, uh, we are all in the business of providing, building new technology, providing solutions, and monetizing that. But think about this uh, uh, from a point of view of buying a car. You buy a car, you pay for it, you get into it, and now you have to pay to actually unlock the steering wheel. You have to pay for it for every mile that you're actually driving. And most importantly, you have to pay every time you want to unbuckle your seatbelt and open the door to get out. That's essentially what we are talking about. That is not the experience that is going to help promote innovation and adoption and business growth. So it's super important for customers to have the ability to bring workloads onto a cloud platform and to actually not think about uh, what it would mean a year, two years, or three years down the line in terms of cost models for us. Do I get trapped and locked in, or do I actually have the ability to take advantage of the uh, solutions and services and innovation that is coming out in the, uh, in the, in the ecosystem? Please subscribe to our YouTube channel and hit the subscribe button at the top of our website so we can send you our newsletter and notify you of live shows. What are the challenges for a CIO who is facing this kind of lock-in and facing the cost implications you were just describing and they're sick of it? They say, I've had enough. So what are the challenges of alleviating that? When we started our business transformation five years ago, and which I mentioned earlier, where there was a significant challenge in terms of harmonizing our architectures and uh, and rationalizing our, our cost model, we did a significant migration to the public cloud with the, with the goal of uh, really taking advantage of these latest tools, solutions, technologies, and helping our business uh, in terms of uh, building new analytics products and tools. One of the workloads was our two and a half petabyte workload, uh, which was a machine learning platform that we migrated to the public cloud. And it was a great experience for us. The, the first year we actually did great in terms of not only building the product and the platform for our internal business users, but it also helped us rationalize our costs quite a bit. What we realized was the cost rationalization did not come from the adoption or the migration to the cloud, but it actually came from the discipline that the cloud forces or imposes on you. And that realization was something that came to us in about 12 months time when we started seeing an increase in our costs. And it was very natural for our costs to start going up because we loved the platforms and we wanted more data to be stored. And as our data volumes continued to increase, so did our cost. And we realized that our cost had doubled in 18 months time as compared to how much we used to spend on-prem. And then in another six months time, they doubled again. That's when we realized this actually is not a workable model for the long term because data will keep growing. And as data grows, if our costs keep growing exponentially, we are going to have a challenge in terms of really utilizing the intelligence or extracting the intelligence from all of this data that we are storing. That's when we said, you know, we want to make actually repatriate this workload. The repatriation, instead of coming back to a legacy architecture on-prem, 
we decided that we are going to build our own cloud infrastructure. Given the fact that Seagate is a leader in mass capacity storage, it just made sense for us to build our own cloud for ourselves. And that's what we did. And we migrated our two and a half petabyte workload from the public cloud to our platform. And, and when I started talking about this to, to my friends in Silicon Valley, to, to my peers, uh, what uh, I came to realize is this is not a unique problem. This is a challenge that all the CIOs face today in the technology industry and the non-technology industry, because uh, really what is happening is all businesses are becoming technology businesses and AIML analytics is really one of the key drivers for businesses to extract value. And everyone's experiencing the same issue. So they, they started knocking on the door and said, hey, let's let's see if we can maybe take advantage of uh, this platform that you built. And that's really how we started LiveCloud. So you started LiveCloud out of your own experience and your own observation of your costs just growing and growing and growing in an uncontrolled way. And you figured you had to do something about it. Yes. I will add, though, that we still run a number of our workloads in the public cloud. Right? So there are certain workloads where it actually makes sense to, to take advantage of what is existing in the world. It is when it comes to mass capacity storage, workloads that require significant amounts of storage, that's where the current structure of the public cloud breaks down. And what do we mean by mass capacity? Anyone who has north of a petabyte of data to store, right? starting from a petabyte to 10 to 100 petabytes. Now think about it, storing 100 petabytes of data on the public cloud at the cost models that there are, uh, that there are out there is, uh, is exorbitant. And it actually, in many cases, becomes detrimental for a business to grow. We have a really interesting question from Twitter. This is from Arsalan Khan, who's a regular listener, and he asks such great questions. And he says, standardization is important when data is shared and transported between cloud vendors and on-prem. How did you convince leadership that this needed to be done? It's a process and a journey is what I would say. The approach we took was we looked at the, the world's largest uh, storage standard, which uh, customers or companies have adopted, and and that is the S3 standard. When it look at when you look at object storage service, S3 is the de facto standard. Now, of course, there is uh, Microsoft Azure Blob, there is the GCP platform, but S3 standard is something we decided to adopt, and that's really what LiveCloud has uh, really picked up as a standard. So what we say is we are a S3 compliant object storage as a service, but also there is a need for us to have translation services. Whether you run your workload on Azure or GCP, you should still be able to access your data irrespective of which platform that data is stored in. I think it's very fascinating that you built this service out of your own need because you were the CIO. And as CIO, you, you're, you are in this unique position where you've got this dual role of being the chief information officer of this very large organization, and at the same time being the executive vice president of this product. 
How, how do you manage that? Can you talk with us about that? These are such very different skill sets and objectives. So, so how do you do this? I've been CIO for over 17 years uh, of various companies. And I'd, I'd say that the CIO job is something that I love doing. Uh, it's about really keeping a business running, making it more efficient, uh, bringing about architectures that can actually uh, not only uh, provide support and service to a business for uh, the near term, but these are solutions that actually have to last for a long period of time. It's a it's a, a role where you have to uh, essentially make sure that you stitch a fabric together and the fabric stays in place for a long period of time. I call that trait of CIOs uh, to be that of a paranoid optimist. All CIOs have a high degree of paranoia and a high degree of optimism. And that's really what is ingrained as a CIO in me. Now, switching hats and becoming a business leader is a very different skill and a very different muscle. And that's been something which has been incredibly enlightening to me. It's been a learning process over the last three years where you actually have to be hyper-optimistic while you're also driving your organization to really innovate, to break things, to take risks on a daily basis. So a CIO's role is to be a little paranoid, actually, to, to mitigate risks, but as a business leader, you're forcing yourself and your organization, your team to push the boundaries, to take risks. And this dichotomy of skills uh, is, uh, is, is an interesting experience for me because uh, there is one skill that comes very naturally over the years. And to a great extent, I actually have to unlearn some of that. I have to unlearn and relearn and build new skills. Uh, so uh, while there has been that uh, experience for me to really build these new capabilities, there's also an advantage. Uh, I've been a practitioner and a user of technology for a very long time, and I know what customers want and what they're looking for, the pain points that they actually experience, and bringing that worldview into uh, the role as a business leader, as someone who's building a product, building a service is incredibly important where the customer first mindset is always something that we want to think about. And what is it that a customer wants and what is it that enables a customer? It is not really the technology. It is really a service. What we provide is a service. Is uh, This has been a great learning for me. Um, and really bringing the CIO role and the business role together has been a game changer, not only for me, but for a lot of my peers who I talk to and they learn from this. The common wisdom today for CIOs is that they should be more uh, focused on being a business leaders rather than technology leaders. In your case, you've kind of pushed that boundary very, very far because you're actually running a business. So what are the, the challenges that a CIO may face as they try to develop those business leadership skills and also uh, as they try to get their own organization to accept them as business leaders rather than as technologists alone? The biggest learning that I, that I have is it's actually not about the technology. It's about the people. Uh, we are in the people business. And it is incredibly important to keep in mind that it is talent, skills, 
and organization construct, which actually uh, are the key differentiators between successful businesses and, and, and businesses that are not able to scale and grow. Um, there are different kinds of skills and capabilities required at different stages of a business. And having the ability to understand that, to sense that, and make the right changes is super important for uh, organizations to grow and scale. Uh, on the IT side of the house, what happens is we essentially are working on building a fabric, as I mentioned earlier. It is, it is important to keep the lights on, keep the business running, not be disruptive, take minimal risks. Uh, I call IT as the oxygen uh, in a room. No one ever thanks the oxygen in a room. You breathe in, you breathe out. You expect it to always be there. It's only when you enter a room and there is no oxygen, do you realize the value of what that oxygen was? And that's how IT is. It's supposed to be there always and working, and you don't expect to be thanked for it. So you take a very different mindset. It is about having that paranoid, optimistic mindset. But when it comes to building a business, growing a skill, it's, it's a completely different muscle. It is building the product, pushing the boundaries, engaging with customers. I've never done that. You know, I have such great respect for salespeople now. I've always uh, been a buyer of technology, a practitioner, and someone who uh, people are trying to actually reach out to and sell to. I've switched roles. I'm now selling. And I realize what a tough job selling is. So I have this newfound respect for salespeople and for marketing people and learning their skills, learn, learning uh, all of these different functions has been super important. So yes, technology is a key aspect, but it is about the support, it's about the service, about the sales, about the GTM. It is, it is the 360 degree view of the business that I now have has been incredibly powerful for me. You mentioned the term customer experience. What can CIOs learn from this lesson of customer experience that they can apply in their own work? Actually, there is a, a very good continuum between the CIO role and the role that I play as a, as a business leader. Um, and it is important to keep in mind that CIOs have customers. They are internal customers. And of course, the dynamic is very different. It is not a revenue generation uh, arm of the company, but you still have to fulfill and satisfy the needs of uh, your customers. Now, when it comes to an organization like Seagate, we are vertically in integrated. We're a high-tech manufacturing company. It's a massive footprint around the world, a huge throughput. We have logistics, we have supply chain, we have this incredibly complex financials. So really making sure that you actually stitch all of this together and are able to really drive efficiency and making sure that the business operates incredibly well is all about customer experience. It is ensuring that your analytics reports, your manufacturing reports, your quality reports are all harmonized, that you are getting a single source of truth. The various business groups and users all see the world the same way. And that's really what customer experience is. When I take that out to the business world, it is really about how do you enable customers? It is the wow factor. Yes, your customer expected a storage platform to be available at a lower price, but what is it that they don't get? Or the other way to put it is, what is it that they never expected that they are going to start getting? 
For example, in our case, yes, storage is what we are offering on the public cloud, right? We offer Live Cloud, which is a storage platform, but along with that, we offer a whole slew of services integrated to the customer. There's a professional services arm that is integrated into the offering. We have Live Mobile, which is our uh, data movement platform. We have live migration services for customers who have large volumes of tapes that they have to want to digitize and store the data uh, onto the public cloud. When customers first start talking to us, they never expect us to be able to provide this slew of services, this broad range, this broad spectrum of capabilities. And we come to them and say, look, you pay for storage and nothing else. Everything else is included. Data movement, data storage, encryption, uh, all of the capabilities that you need in terms of replication, in terms of immutability of data, it's all built into the platform. And that's really what the customer experience is. How do you bring about on a daily basis the capabilities that the customer would love to have, but we're not expecting to get from you? Pushing the boundaries every day is really what uh, what drives me and the team. And we have uh, another question from Arsalan, Arsalan Khan, who says, when it comes to, Ravi, when it comes to innovation, how much time should non-technology leaders be spending? And, and, and also as an extension to that, I'll add, what is the relationship between the CIO as a business person, as a technologist, and the other business leaders inside the organization? We live in a world where technology is actually a lever. It is a tool for individuals, organizations, for companies to really bring about what we were talking about earlier, great customer experience. One doesn't have to be a technologist to be a business leader. One doesn't have to be a technologist to be an innovator. In fact, if you look around us, uh, there are loads of startups where the founders and the CEOs do not have a technology background. They come from various backgrounds, whether it be uh, from the government sector, whether it be from healthcare, whether it be from uh, finance. And uh, that's really what it is about. It is having an idea uh, of solving a problem. Innovation is a mindset. Innovation is not really tied to technology. If you have the right mindset, you uh, have the ability to take the right risks. It's about innovation. It's about take risk taking. It's about pushing the boundaries. That's really what drives the world in terms of innovation in today's, uh, in today's ecosystem. And we have another question from Twitter. This is from Wayne Anderson. He's another regular listener of CXO Talk who asks wonderful questions. And Wayne Anderson says, when a customer is heavily invested in a top three cloud provider, where do you see are the biggest opportunities to help them improve that customer experience and create value that the cloud environment in and of itself, the cloud providers could not offer? We are complementary to the big three. We actually offer our services as a complementary platform to what the hyperscalers offer. And that's the reason you'll keep hearing from me that we are a storage backplane. What does a storage backplane mean? It means you actually store all your data in an environment that is democratic, that is free, that is frictionless, has uh, no, no constraints in terms of data movement or additional costs. 
that allows you to now start leveraging all the different solutions that the different CSPs, hyperscalers, and on-prem platforms provide you. And that's the true multi-cloud ecosystem where you have data sitting in a backplane and you're able to leverage the application footprints and the innovations, whether it be in uh, CSP A or CSP B's environment. Now, uh, the, the innovation that actually comes out from that is it allows customers to really think broader, to think more horizontally in terms of how they want to structure and architect their uh, their businesses. And they don't have to be locked into a single platform. They don't have to be locked into a single vendor. And uh, that's the freedom that we bring about. Uh, of course, there is the whole TCO model benefit. There is a dramatic TCO benefit, given the fact that we are the world storage manufacturers and we provide storage to 50% of the world, we bring in storage at a price point which is incredibly attractive to customers. And the value is in terms of really mass capacity storage. So if you look at um, data analytics, 80% of big data analytics workloads today still sit on-prem. They sit on-prem because of the high cost of storage in the public cloud. And the way I look at that is, we offer an opportunity for customers to migrate those workloads from their data centers to a new cloud-based architecture, which brings them closer to the CSPs. Now, we are able to actually keep the data in live cloud and be able to leverage, uh, whether it be Azure or AWS or GCP's analytics platforms to actually access this data. Okay, and we have a, a related question from Elizabeth Shaw who says multi-cloud is very much infrastructure. Is there a role, does multi-cloud have a role in creating a business value or what kind of uh, non-technology business value does multi-cloud enable? Multi-cloud is uh, more than just a concept. Multi-cloud is about bringing freedom to customers. And when you bring freedom of data movement and workload migration, it by itself is going to really spawn a whole bunch of different use cases and capabilities that customers are going to need, whether it be technology uh, use cases or professional services use cases, uh, architecting your future applications to actually leverage the different capabilities across multiple CSPs and stitching a solution together. So yes, there will be uh, a number of opportunities for technology and non-technology uh, organizations to really look at multi-cloud multi in a way that it will build uh, new solutions and, and product offerings in the industry. What advice do you have for CIOs who want to play an active role in digital transformation or business transformation? I mean, when when I when I think about your story of being the CIO and then developing this product offering, I mean, to me that defines transformation. So, what what advice do you have for CIOs who are looking at this? The bias towards action is key. I mean, I've always been a person who believes in action because only through action do you actually realize uh, whether your theories and ideas are actually going to get the benefit that uh, they promise to. So what I, I would say is that uh, I have a very strong bias for action and I also have an appetite for risk. It is important that action and risk go hand in hand. 
Uh, it is super important because on, only when you keep pushing the boundaries, you keep pushing the envelope, do you break things. And it's through this breaking of things on a regular basis do you learn and you pivot. So a mindset of it's okay to not have perfection is actually a good mindset because in in your uh, desire to gain perfection, we lose time. The most important asset for any CIO or any business leader is time. The ability to scale rapidly, to ability to grow the business quickly, to pivot very rapidly are super important. And uh, this, this mix of innovation, risk, and bias for action are incredibly important when it comes to any transformation, whether it be within IT or outside of IT. Uh, specific to IT transformation, I would say that it's important to really understand what the uh, what the holy grail is, what the what the key capabilities are or the functions are that you don't want to break. When I came to Seagate, my boss, the CEO, told me, "Look, Ravi, uh, everything is up for debate. Just don't break my factories." And that was great guidance, right? We took that guidance to heart. We ensured that we hardened our factories. We ensured that our infrastructure was upgraded in our factories. And as we did the transformation, we carved out the rest of the business and said, okay, let's really push very aggressively. Let's take more risks because it's easy for us to recover if you make a mistake. Uh, so it's important to kind of find that balance. Where is it that you can take risks and you should take risks? And where is it that you want to be a little conservative? That's a very important point, a very uh, nuanced point. So you have to be clear when it comes to risk-taking on the nature of the risk that you're willing to assume. So so in other words, you have to take risks, but you also need to be clear around the the type of risk and the extent of risk. It's not it's not just a, well, let's, you know, experiment a little bit here and we'll see what breaks and then we'll fix it. It's not like that. Absolutely right. But when it comes to actually running a business or building a business, um, there is nothing more important than pushing the boundaries and taking greater risks. You want to fail. If you're not failing, you're not trying. And there is uh, those words are actually very true. And you really, really need to be able to push yourself and your team. Look, I tell my team, it's it's okay that that we have bugs in the software, issues in our service, our uh, our our customers will call in and report an issue. It's perfectly fine. What is not okay is not to be able to respond to that. We have to have the ability and the agility to very quickly address customer issues or product issues. Because if you don't push the boundaries, if you're not making the mistakes, you're not really trying hard enough and your competition is going to catch up with you. And, and it's super important to really be very forward leaning and leaning into risk. I mean, that is the single biggest lesson I've learned. You can never take enough risk when you're building a new business. You really need to push yourself and your organization and the boundaries on this. So how do you talk with your team and encourage your team to take risks when I can imagine somebody thinking to themselves, you know, I really value my job. I don't want to make a mistake. You know, I want to do the right thing, but yet he's telling me to take these risks. I'm not sure what to do. So how do you coach such a person who's who's in that quandary? When we started our journey with LiveCloud, what we did was we uh, we were self-funded. What I mean by that is we had an objective of bringing our IT spend to a specific 
uh, acceptable level. Let me put it that way. We were spending over $300 million a year in IT spend, and we brought that down to, the goal was to bring it to somewhere in the $200 million range. We did that in 18 months' time. The agreement I had with the CEO at that point in time was, look, uh, there's more room here for me to optimize the IT organization. But rather than actually write a check back to you, I would like to invest that because I've hit the metrics that the company was looking for. So how about we actually take this little experiment of migrating our workload from the public cloud, building our own cloud, and we'll self-fund it. So we self-funded it through actually rationalizing our IT ecosystem. But we also moved people. We started a redeployment program with our HR partners, and we redeployed a number of our HR engineer, IT engineers to our cloud business. Now, there are all kinds of people. There were those people who were incredibly excited at the opportunity. There are these forward-leaning people. They want to do more. They want to learn. They want to drive this whole new idea. And, and they're great. They fit right in. And then there are those who were like very risk-averse. And they had to be convinced and they had to be kind of coached into accepting the risk. And then there were those who had to be dragged, kicking and screaming. And we were like, you have to come in because we need your skills. This is where you need it most. They were not happy. They were not excited. We dragged them into the role. Fast forward three years, we now have people who have been in the company for 20, 25 years, and they were running a very easy, stable job, very repetitive, very unexciting roles. And they're actually getting opportunities outside of Seagate. I had, I had a senior director recently come to me and say that he got a cloud operations role in a new cloud company. And he was kind of mixed in, in two minds whether he should take that up. It was a great opportunity. And I was excited for him. I said, look, you, you've worked here for 25 years doing the same thing for 25 years. And here, after investing a year and a half, two years in this new business, you have doors open for you. And, and that's really where the, the light dawns on people. Taking risk, whether it be in a business or in your career, is a positive thing. The, the ability for you to really scale new uh, grounds is, is immense. And that's the experience I have myself. I've always pushed myself. It's when I'm uncomfortable uh, every day is when I know that I'm actually growing and learning. And that's the goal, to be uncomfortable on a daily basis. Give us the quick sales pitch on the product. Seagate Live Cloud is uh, the industry's leading mass capacity object storage as a service. We uh, are in the US and Asia currently offering our services. We have four data centers, about half an exabyte in provision capacity. We have customers uh, who are Fortune 500 customers across the board from, from logistics to cybersecurity to collaboration technologies, and a whole slew of semiconductor uh, companies who are leveraging live cloud. Uh, our product offering is essentially geared towards storing large volumes of data in the multi-petabyte capacity scale, where customers can bring their data in and actually achieve a 70% uh, savings on their storage costs. Unfortunately, we're out of time. I want to say a huge thank you to Ravi Naik, who is with Seagate for taking time to be with us. Ravi, thank you very much for, for being with us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. It has been a pleasure speaking with you and uh, hope uh, the audience enjoyed uh, the conversation. 
And a huge thank you to everybody who watched, especially to the people who asked such great questions. Now, before you go, please subscribe to our YouTube channel and hit the subscribe button at the top of our website so we can send you our newsletter and notify you of live shows. And with that, check out CXOTalk.com. We have excellent shows coming up and we will see you soon. Have a great day, everybody.